Oh, great God, we do praise you this morning, and we give you the glory and the honor that is due your name. Uh, for you are, as we just sang, you are holy and majestic and powerful. Uh, you made the earth and everything in it. You control the stars and the planets and the wind and the waves. All nature is at your command, and no one can thwart your will. You are sovereign over kings and kingdoms, over rulers and nations, and you work all things according to the counsel of your will. And yet, not only are you great and mighty, not only do you have matchless power as you rule over creation, but you are also a gracious and a merciful God. And we, we gather here to worship you this morning not because we are worthy to be your people, and to come before you, but no, we are here because you have made a way for us through the blood of your perfect son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life freely so that we might become free, that we might be free from sin and from death, free from fear of condemnation and judgment and wrath, free then to love and to honor and obey you, because you are worthy and because you have given us new life through Christ. And God, we think of uh, the family meeting taking place this evening, and we, uh, we do just pray for your help uh, for this body, for the members of this church, uh, as, we, as we gather and we, we seek uh, as, as, a, as a congregation to, to make this decision. We pray that you would help us, help uh, your church, your bride, um, that there would be no division, that there would be no conflicts, but that all of our discussion, all of our prayer, all of our decisions, uh, our hearts, every single man and woman would be to discern your will. For we know uh, that, you, uh, that you are faithful and you are good, and we trust um, that you have uh, begun such a good work here in this church and that you have plans to continue that work uh, as your people gather together under the authority uh, of the gospel and of, of your word. And now we ask for your help as we turn this morning to the preaching of your word. We confess that we are uh, finite creatures and we struggle sometimes to comprehend all of your ways, all of your greatness, your mysteries. But we know and we trust that your word is profitable to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. And so I pray you would be with your servant. Help me uh, to handle your word faithfully and to hold up the glories uh, of your grace for all of us to see. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, common practice for preachers like myself would, would be often to kind of start out uh, the sermon with an introduction, some kind of a story, some kind of an illustration to, to draw you in. But if you happen to notice at this look at the sermon card, um, we have a, a longer sermon text today, and so we don't 
really have time for that. Also, we are, as has been mentioned, we're beginning the book of Esther, which is a riveting story in itself. And so I don't think it's, it's needed today. Um, but I would encourage you, before we jump in, uh, just as you open your Bibles and, and turn to uh, Esther chapter 1, I would encourage you to, to be on the lookout as we read through this passage for a repeated theme, a repeated event uh, that's going to show up three times at the very beginning, kind of the opening, uh, beginning of chapter one, and then it's going to show up once again at the end. So just be on the lookout for that, and we'll return to it later, uh, but maybe just give you something to follow along with uh, as we read through Esther chapter one, uh, beginning in verse one, and then through uh, Esther 2.18. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the, no and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. 
This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike." This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin promised. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the capital, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem." Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women— When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter... To go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, uh, this, this incredible story, and I know that was a lot, but that's not even the whole story, but this incredible story of Esther, it begins around 483 B.C. during the reign of, of Hashuerus, who is better known by the Greek name Xerxes. Fifty years prior to uh, the reign of Xerxes, Cyrus, the ruler Cyrus, had allowed Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. That was in 539 B.C., and, and though the experiences of those returning exiles are recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but there are many Jews still living in the Persian Empire, among them Mordecai and his cousin Esther. And so Esther is the story of, of exiles in a hostile pagan world. If you remember just last Sunday, the, the sermon um, that Pastor James preached from 1 Peter begins with the words, to the elect exiles. So there's, there's something here that's very relevant for us, something that is relatable. But it's, it's about being exiles. It's about the power of human actions and decisions to bring about great good or great evil. It's about the importance of courage and bravery. But most of all, it's about the providence of the unseen God, working beneath the surface and bringing about his redemptive purposes through seemingly ordinary events. And so what I hope that we're going to see today as we, as we look a little de- more deeply at this, this text, what I hope that we will, we will learn, that God will open our eyes uh, to see, is to not be impressed, don't be impressed with earthly power or wisdom, but trust the God who is sovereign over kings and nations. Let's say that one more time. Don't be impressed with earthly power or with earthly wisdom, but trust the God who is sovereign over kings and nations. And we're just going to walk through this in kind of three, three main sections. Uh, the first is a king enraged, and then we're going to look at a crisis managed, and finally a queen crowned. So first, a king enraged. In these opening verses, verses 1 through 12, the extravagant riches of Persia are put on full display. Xerxes is wanting to impress his officials, his nobles, military leaders. He wants to display his glory and his wealth. All this abundant food and wine, this luxurious palace that's described in detail. This is intended to send a clear message. Nothing compares to the greatness and power of my empire. Now, if you noticed, if you were trying to look for what those recurring events or themes uh, in our passage today, uh, it was, it's the word feast. There are, there are feasts throughout um, this text and throughout the, the book of Esther. So in addition to the two feasts that Xerxes is, is holding in verse 3 and then in verse 5, we also notice down in verse 9 that Queen Vashti is holding a separate feast for the women. Now this theme of a feast or a banquet is really significant in the book of Esther. Um, the Hebrew word is going to show up 20 times just in the book of Esther, and it shows up 24 times in all the other Old Testament books combined. And Esther, if you know the story, she's going to hold her own banquets, right, her own feasts in chapter 5 and 7, and then at the end, feasting is going to show up uh, again in, in chapters 8 and 9. But in today's passage, besides these three feasts, 
in chapter 1 and what they represent, uh, there's going to be one more feast at the end down in chapter 2. And what do these lavish feasts of chapter 1 represent? They represent the might and the glory of Persia. And yet, a conflict enters the scene. A problem arises. Uh, Let me just read verses 10 through 12 again. So, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So a crisis ruins the king's moment, the king's great display of strength. He's the ruler of the greatest empire on earth. Endless riches are at his disposal, and yet he's still vulnerable to humiliation and embarrassment. The queen refuses to come at his command. Now, the author doesn't really explain to us why Vashti refused to come, but it's clear that the king and all his guests had been drinking to excess, and his sole motive seemed to be just showing Vashti off as another trophy of his power and greatness. And we don't get to hear directly from Vashti why she refused despite the great risk that was certainly involved. But the point isn't so much whether or not Vashti displays exemplary conviction in standing up for her personal dignity or whether she's foolishly insubordinate. People have tried to interpret it certainly both, both ways. The point, as, as the scholar Karen Jobes writes, the point is that the Persian court was not a safe place because Xerxes held great power and he wielded it unpredictably, making decisions from dubious motives with impaired judgment. And this is going to be critical information for us to understand as we go through the rest of the book of Esther. But there's also another crucial point. So Xerxes, he made the impulsive and selfish decision to order Vashti to be paraded around in front of his drunk officials. He abused his absolute power by requiring his queen to do something that was undoubtedly degrading and beneath her dignity. And Vashti made a decision to put her foot down, and in so doing, she made the king look foolish in front of everyone. Now, as we'll see, her ability to undermine the king's authority was going to be short-lived. He is enraged, and so it's clear this isn't going to end well. But in these human decisions, God's hand is at work behind the scenes, God's providence. God's providence is is the way he governs the normal, ordinary events and circumstances of our lives, bringing about his own redemptive purposes, keeping his promises, saving his people. And so if one word could sum up really the whole book of Esther, it would be providence. Even though God is not mentioned by name, even once it's undeniable that he is at work. And so, Christian, can you relate to Esther and Mordecai living in this kind of a world where your identity and values are are so often opposed, even mocked by the dominant culture, by the, the influential ones, 
by those who control the levers of power? Do you struggle to live with this tension? You know, one response is to be just so pressured, so bombarded by the worldly values, so impressed with the glory of, of human achievement and thought that you simply cave and you go along with the culture. But Christian, all the fame, all the glory that, that comes along with the praise of men is ultimately empty and fleeting. It's been said, you know, everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame. In the age of, of TikTok, it might just be 15 seconds. But regardless, it quickly fades. Even King Xerxes, the most powerful man on earth, after hosting all these lavish feasts to impress his officials, he's humiliated by one woman refusing to do his bidding. Another response is, is being overcome with fear of the persecution or the mistreatment that might come our way as Christians. You know, if the powerful despise our belief and have the ability to abuse their power in, in unjust ways, we can be tempted to just hunker down and try to keep a low profile. But fear and despair are not fitting for a disciple of Jesus. You know, ungodly, abusive power will prevail at times, and God's people have suffered and, and do suffer terribly. And that may happen here in this country. But what we know from God's Word, what the story of Esther helps to remind us, is that ultimately worldly power that opposes God and His people will be judged and brought to nothing. And not only that, God will mock and ridicule those who were considered great. We are going to see irony and humor in Esther because the God of heaven laughs at the foolish and futile plans of the wicked. You see that really clearly in Psalm 2. I'd encourage you to, to read that later. It's a great example of this. So we've seen the king enraged, and now turning to this next section, we're going to see a crisis managed in verses 13 through 22. So the king has had too much to drink. Then he's been humiliated in front of all the most important men in the, his empire. Now he's enraged. And so he turns to the wise men seated around him, and he seeks to deal with this crisis legally. You know, he's, he's like a good American. Let's just kick this to the court system, right? What is to be done according to the law? And one man, one advisor steps up and, and counsels the king. Uh, let's look again just at verses 16 through 20. Then Mimucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now at one level, uh, Mamukin is quite clever. He takes the spotlight, he takes the heat off of the king's personal humiliation, and he recasts it as an empire-wide crisis. Vashti has committed an offense against all men everywhere. All women will hear what Vashti, uh, that she did not come when she was called for, and they will despise their own husbands. And Mimukin also is shrewdly playing to the crowd here. It's, it's, a, it's a huge assembly of men. There are literally no women in the room. And the men are all too eager to make an example of Vashti if it means keeping their own wives in line. But if Mimukin won the, the favor of the king for telling Xerxes and all his guests what they wanted to hear, his counsel was also foolish. It's generally a bad idea to make an irreversible decree when you're angry and had too much to drink. And, and really, in chapter 2, it seems as though the king regretted his decision. But it was too late. And the decree seems petty and vindictive, like, like a little boy whose pride is hurt. See, rather than, than shielding the king and all his men against the contempt of their wives, it makes the king appear foolish for trying to legislate what ultimately must come from the heart, honor, and respect. And just a little, a little side note to all the men. No law or decree, no command or order, not even, not even quoting scripture can make you worthy of honor and respect from a woman. If, if you're immature, if you're foolish, if you're acting sinfully and selfishly, don't demand respect from your wife or your girlfriend. Be a person who merits respect. Because look, Mamukin's decree wasn't going to cause women to honor their husbands. If their husbands were honorable, they would be honored. But if they were childish and self-centered like Xerxes, no royal order, not even coerced obedience could save them from the contempt that they maybe rightly deserved. So we see here the, the foolishness of human wisdom. Just because you can get a crowd of people who all see things exactly the way you do to agree with you, it doesn't mean your decisions are wise or good. And again, even though God is not mentioned, the author of Esther mocks the wise men of Persia because their foolish counsel only serves to bring about God's providential purpose. As, as 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, God made foolish the wisdom of the world. Mamukin's words there in verse 19 carry more meaning than he knows or understands. He says, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. You see, in order to preserve the Jewish people through whom the Messiah would one day come, through whom all of God's promises would be kept, through whom all the nations on earth would be blessed. In order for that to happen, God wants to arrange a little personnel change in the palace of King Xerxes. So we've seen a king enraged, a crisis managed. Finally, we see 
in chapter 2, a queen is crowned. So, a little time has passed in the opening of chapter 2. The king appears to, to miss his queen. And his young attendants, they, they pick up on this, and they suggest he choose a new queen in verses 1 through 4. And so, thus begins this whole elaborate process where young women are gathered from every province, and we are finally introduced to Mordecai and his cousin Esther in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now we learn several things here as, as these two characters are introduced. First of all, Mordecai's ancestors include relatives of Israel's first king, King Saul. And this connection is going to become important later on in the story. We also see that Mordecai's family was brought to Babylon along with King Jeconiah, who's also known as Jehoiachin. And, and that, this was at the time when Nebuchadnezzar had taken away the nobility from Jerusalem and left behind the poor. And that's in 2 Kings 24. And so this indicates that, that they were Jewish nobility, perhaps even having a claim of, of, of royal blood. Now Esther, whose Hebrew name is Hadassah, is an orphaned cousin that Mordecai has taken in and raised as his own. And, and really, Mordecai's loving care and concern for Esther, down in verse 11, talks about him coming in and checking on her every day to see how she is. It really stands in stark contrast to the, the selfish exploitation that characterizes the court of Xerxes. Now, this name Hadassah, the Hebrew name, means myrtle. And the, the, the fascinating thing here is that the myrtle plant actually shows up in the Old Testament prophets. It's used by the prophets to symbolize God's reversing the fortunes of his people. So, for instance, in Isaiah 55, 13, Isaiah writes, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So there's this beautiful picture of God's, God's grace, his mercy, restoring his people, reversing their situation. Flowers blooming in the desert. But Hadassah, she goes by her Persian name Esther. Her true identity, her Jewish heritage is kept hidden because, as we see in verse 10, Mordecai had commanded her not to make known her people or kindred. Now, whether or not this was the, the faithful or right choice, you know, because we can contrast this story sometimes to experiences of Daniel and his friends in Babylon, and, and they're, not, they're not always the same, right? But whether or not this was the, the faithful decision, it reflects Mordecai's consciousness of the peril Esther faced as a Jew living in this pagan empire. And most of us, we read it earlier, but most of us are probably familiar with the way things unfold 
Esther is competing with many other young women, but right away she wins the favor of the man in charge, Haggai, who advances her to the top position in the harem. Each woman would have one chance to to win the king's love and favor, and if she failed in this, she would never be summoned again, uh, but would live in what one commentator called luxurious desolation. Now, to be honest, it's difficult to know what to do with with Mordecai's instruction for Esther to hide her Jewish identity. And we aren't really told what Esther thought about the things, all the things that were happening to her. Because let's be honest, this is no beauty contest. It required things that a good Jewish woman or a good Christian would find completely unthinkable. The point is not that Mordecai and Esther provide flawless examples for us of faithful living. The point is that they were struggling with life as exiles in a hostile land. And and the moral and ethical questions that presented themselves were not merely theoretical, but they could spell the difference between life and death. Now, just just as all of the Hebrew exiles had been carried away into exile, now Esther has been taken taken into Xerxes' harem. She and all of her people were living under a ruthless king with absolute power who took whatever he wanted. So this is no fairy tale. This is the grim reality of life in a sinful world. And if you're a woman or a girl listening this morning, I know this story confronts us over and over with, with physical beauty being used as, as the measure of women's value and also as the basis for their exploitation. And you know, America in the 21st century isn't much different from pagan Persia. But hear this, your worth is not based on physical beauty And it's never okay for you to be objectified, to be reduced to merely your appearance because you are created in the image of God. And it's never okay for abusive power to be used against a woman or a man, a girl or a boy. And if that's happened to you, I am sorry. And God cares This church cares, and you are worthy of of compassion and of healing. You know, and we would be honored to, to walk alongside you and to help you. But what we learn in Esther is that God is still at work, even in the most painful, the most unjust circumstances. And he's writing a story of redemption, a story of tables turned, and of beauty instead of ashes. You see, through all the details of Esther's story, as, as messy and difficult as they were, God was working out his plan. And so Esther was about to rise in power and influence far beyond what anyone could have expected. Let's just look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except 
what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. You know, as I've said earlier, God is not mentioned in this book. He's hidden from view, seemingly absent as Esther and Mordecai navigate their complex world. But I think perhaps the author of Esther tips his hand with this recurring word, favor. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She won grace and favor in the king's sight more than all the rest. And this word favor is the Hebrew word hesed. It's, it's a rich word used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's covenant love and faithfulness, his loyalty, a loyal, undeserved love. I think it's here that we see you know, the contrast between Vashti and Esther. Esther wins favor with Haggai, with everyone, ultimately with the king himself. And through this, we see God's covenant faithfulness at work. For he is placing Esther in this role to save his people. You know, Esther seems at the mercy of coercive, unchecked power. Her family was taken away into exile. She was taken away into the king's harem. Yet God had a plan for salvation, working these things together for good. Because the Jewish people must be preserved. For one day, another Savior would arise from Israel's midst. Like Esther, as he grew up, he would increase in favor with God and man. But like Esther, he would be taken away by unjust power. The prophet Isaiah wrote of him, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Jesus Christ was treated unjustly, abused, and ultimately executed on a Roman cross Yet God was accomplishing his plan for salvation, not only for Israel, but for people from every tribe and nation on earth. And this Savior, though he was crucified in our place to pay for our sins, he rose again after three days and now is exalted at the right hand of God. And everyone who puts their trust in him will be forgiven and receive eternal life. And if you don't have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, if you want to learn more about him, please come talk to me, talk to the person who invited you. We would love to, to explore that together with you. Now, we began with, with three feasts, which led to the downfall of a queen. Now, at the conclusion in verse 18, there's another feast. The king gives a great feast. It's Esther's feast. Because our God brings down kings and rulers and raises up the lowly. He mocks the boasting of the wicked. He is the God of reversal. And the greatest reversal in all history 
is when the seeming defeat of the Son of God in his death was in fact his victory and led to his resurrection and his exaltation and our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your word and even uh, a story like Esther, which in some ways is, is challenging and complicated, uh, we see just the glory of your, your sovereign purposes, your great power and might. We pray that we would learn, uh, that we would be uh, challenged and encouraged in our faith. Most of all, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, the greatest Savior of all, the one who uh, was, was taken and mistreated and put to death, and yet you turn the tables on, on Satan and sin and death, and you accomplish the greatest victory of all. And we praise you for that. And as we turn to the Lord's table, we praise you for his body and his blood for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.